to tonight we have the uh, third lecture on the theater of the absurd. Uh, the first lecture was an introductory lecture of the theater of the absurd, and then the uh, second lecture actually covered the theater of the absurd itself, dealing with Jerry, but also Eslin's book on the um, theater of the absurd. And then the lecture tonight will be the conclusion of this, not dealing with the theater of the absurd itself, but tying it in with the dilemma that we've already found in the uh, theater of the absurd. Now, I wasn't satisfied with my summary that I gave last time on the theater of the absurd itself. So I'll repeat, making some changes. Those of you are taking notes, uh, this summary is, ties together some of the things I didn't tie together at the end of the last time lectures, the lecture last time. Uh, as I would see it, you, there's a summary that has to be understood uh, in considering the theater of the absurd, but also other things that are surrounding this same thought form. And the first, the distinction you remember is that a man like Jean-Paul Sartre, Camus and so forth, teaches that there is an absurd universe and the man's place in it specifically is absurd. But these men speak of the, the, of the absurd using normal syntax, the normal use of words, uh, and words in their normal usage. On the other hand, the theater of the absurd has gone further in the sense that it speaks of absurdity in an absurd thought form. Or um, by doing this, the, the Inesco, Samuel Beckett, gives us a series of absurd situations, and specifically that language itself is strongly devaluated. And the point can be made that the very heart of the theater of the absurd is the devaluation uh, of language. So you have two steps. You have the statement of the absurd, but using normal syntax. And then you have, in the theater of the absurd itself, absurdity taught by absurd situations. Now, however, there's a third point that we saw, and that is the fact that, the, uh, that, is the fact that these men do not really stop with absurdity but rather they move into what they hope will be a communication on a first-order level. And uh, all these men, as we went through Essling, we saw this constant stress that these men are stating an absurd situation, but stating an absurd situation, nevertheless, uh, at the same time, there is a hope for communication above the normal use of language, which uh, we paralleled very closely to, say, let's say, an LSD experience. Now, Essling himself, you'll remember, uh, and the important about Essling is the fact that he has been a power in the BBC broadcasting. Uh, Essling itself puts forth two steps in absurdity as the theater of the absurd has presented absurdity. And the first thing is that he says it, they want to jar the cabbage-like thinking of the bourgeois or the upper middle class people. So they present a series of situations that jars uh, the, uh, the complacent thinking. And up to this point, we who are Christians can be agreed. We can be glad uh, that this romantic bourgeois mentality is jarred. But then, secondly, you remember that he presented after you have jarred the bourgeois awake, 
Or you have to say, really, after that is that life really is absurd, which is it's uh, almost like a sick piece of humor, uh, that you wake a man up and you say, uh, you've been dreaming a pleasant dream, and that's stupid. Uh, really wake up. But then when you wake him up, you say, life is absurd. And so you have these two levels in uh, Essling's presentation of the theater of the absurd. And as I say, as Christians, we can be very, very sympathetic with waking up the, the bourgeois mind, the romantic mind uh, that is uh, very, very foolish uh, in uh, thinking that all is well when all is not well. But then their whole message, and we've gone through four hours of lecture at this point, you must remember, those are just beginning, uh, their whole message is that really after you get done, uh, there is only absurdity. But at the very end, I also pointed out, however, that this absurdity is a very selective, uh, is presented in a very selective area. It is a destruction, but a very selective destruction. It's not a total destruction. Uh, and there is very carefully a destruction of especially the sense of absolutes and expressly the sense of Christian absolutes are, are destroyed uh, in, with, a, with a, uh, uh, a selective intention. Now, in this selective uh, destruction, we must understand that one, one mark of the selective destruction uh, is the fact that in their normal lives, they don't live this way. In our, those of you who are following the courses, for example, in the intellectual climb and the new theology, in the rational, logical portion of life, in the normal things of life, they don't really live as though it's destroyed. At least very, very often they don't. Uh, so the first thing in understanding the selectivity of the destruction is that in many of the normal things of life, they really don't destroy it. They, they, you live on in a straight line, you still go to the grocery store and you buy your groceries and you obey the traffic policeman, something like this. But Essling himself carries this further uh, in something that is intriguing, in that he, in two points. First of all, Essling points out that in many of the uh, theater of the absurd people, and with Essling himself, he has a real hope that in spite of the fact that you're stating absurdity in an absurd fashion, uh, yet nevertheless, in the first order communication, he's hoping something will drop out, and uh, something might come out. And this is parallel, of course, uh, to Terry Southern, who is the wrote Candy and, uh, and the Magic Christian and so forth, uh, in his statement in the, uh, that we've studied about uh, the, uh, these writers, these 20th century writers, that in writing pornographic material, such as Candy uh, and these, uh, these other pornographic books, that Terry Southern has nevertheless the hope that somehow, irrationally, if you throw up enough pornographic material, what he calls the ethic of a golden age will drop out. So you have a, an interesting parallel here. That Terry Southern uh, says, we throw up the pornographic material in the hope against all rationality uh, that some, kind, uh, some, uh, some ethic of a golden age will drop out. Now, Essling and these men in the Theater of the Absurd actually say the same thing. We don't see how it will work. It doesn't make any sense. It's always absurd. It's really absurd. We're not just shocking the bourgeois mind, but it's really absurd. Yet, nevertheless, he gives this, this sort of whiny hope at the end, I would say, that maybe something will drop out. And then in Essling, finally, uh, you have already a, a form of a very vaguely developed pantheism in Essling, the end of Essling's work which comes in a full circle, really, 
because as we've pointed out so many, many times, in reality, almost all these men move into some form of pantheism. So it's, it's just the same all over again. But now I'd say I've drawn together, that's the end of last, the last lecture, and we can go on uh, further. Now in this, you have, um, you have therefore, in the studying of the theater of the absurd, just as in other, other subjects, uh, a tension. And Dr. Ruckmacher, in his lecture last Thursday night, mentioned this tension. And uh, the tension is this, that in everything that can be considered rational or logical, uh, these men see, uh, modern man sees himself as absurd. And just want to say for those of you who haven't been here, we have considered Francis Bacon as a painter, uh, James Bond, all sorts of, uh, of relationships to this. But modern man sees himself, as far as any rational answer is concerned, as absurd, and yet at the same time he keeps hoping for this first-order experience in the non-rational, non-logical area of life. Uh, he just keeps hoping for this first-order experience for the simple reason that he really can't stand. Uh, he really can't uh, stand the situation, and he can't get away from being man. That's, you remember uh, Dr. Ruckmacher pointed this out in art last Thursday night, but it's true in all these other things as well. You have this tremendous tension, uh, the tension between every rational and logical statement saying man is absurd, and you should ex express it not only like Sartre does, but express it in the theater of the absurd. Uh, look at Samuel Beckett. Here he is. This is the way it should be. And yet at the same time, when you get to the end, you have this, this, uh, this desperation that you find in Essling, but also in Inesco, uh, in the factor that nevertheless they can't stand it, and they hope somehow in a first-order experience something will drop out. Now, tonight, in this postscript, I'm not, I hope I finished in the two hours, we'll see, I'd like to divide it into two parts in the postscript. First of all, the seeing modern man's emphasis upon the absurd, where it comes from, and then the second half of the lecture, the fact of uh, exhibition from these modern men that they can't really live this way, they can't stay in not being man after all. Now, first of all, then, in the absurd. I have here a New Statesman of uh, 19th of February, 1965, and there's an article that I especially want to deal uh, with someone that some, some of, uh, a, a woman that some of you know, most people don't know about, but she's really very, very important, and that's Simone Weil, or Veal, however you wish to pronounce it, W-E-I-L. And uh, Simone Veal is dead, but she has been very considered very important in liberal theological circles. For instance, in England, you often see her quoted in the, in, in the very far-out liberal theological groups. And I want to read just this little bit, because I think it's the key. The function of such a work, doesn't matter here, the function of such a work, one has to see, is what Simon Veal, or Wheel, called decreation, decreation. Wallace Stevens, whose profound contribution to the subject nobody seems to have noticed, picked the word out of Le, uh, Le Ponceur et la Grasse. Simon Wheel explained the difference from destruction. So she's speaking now and she says, modern man lives in an era of decreation. And then she explains what she means between as decreation in contrast to destruction. And here is her explanation. Decreation is not a change from the created to nothingness, but from the created to the uncreated. So she uses decreation as a technical term, which I'd like to pick up and dwell on tonight. 
And that is, not the modern man says nothing is there. Jean-Paul Sartre's big point, you remember, is one of his big points is that the basic philosophic, uh, the basic philosophic question is that something's there rather than nothing being there. And this is the basic philosophic problem of modern man. So Seaman Veal fitting into this, or Wheel fitting into this, doesn't say nothing is there. But she says, the, but she says, nevertheless, let's realize that we live in an era of decreation. De that is, that everything we see is non-created. Now, at first, this may sound almost like a philosophic quibble, but it's really not. It becomes very, very crucial, because in reality, this is this is that which projects man into the whole era of of absurdity is that he has moved from a world in which he knows the origin and he knows something about it into a situation in which being with a capital B is just there and he doesn't know anything about it. And now what is there, being with a capital B, stands as in itself with, with no relationship that makes any sense to anything else. So therefore, instead of looking at what is there, being with a capital B, as being created and therefore in relationship to somebody who's there, Modern man takes and he, he says, no, I see something is there, but there's nobody created it, and all I have is the thing itself. Now, rea in reality, this that Seaman Wheel uh, brings here, I think, is the key of modern man's dilemma and that which leads to absurdity. Some of you know the art critic, the American art critic, Harold uh, Rosenberg, very interesting man, and uh, back in 1964, he wrote a book, uh, the, uh, printed, the book was published, the, uh, the Anxious Object by Harold Rosenberg, 270 pages, printed by Horizon, uh, $7.50. And this is, the, uh, this is the summary as given by Newsweek of one of his points, which I think, and as you follow Rosenberg in his criticisms, uh, they appear many places, you find that often he has very, his things very worthwhile to say. Uh, and this is what Rosenberg says. But as Rosenberg's title hints, in our time, anxiety, now remember it's called the anxious object. Those of you who know something about Heidegger will immediately think of angst, of course, here. Not only uh, Heidegger, the German thinking generally, but nevertheless you can tie it in with uh, Heidegger and his anxiety, his angst. But as Rosenberg's title hints, in our time, anxiety has spread from the artist to encompass even the object of his attention. As a matter of fact, it infects everything. Quote, is a direct quote from Rosenberg. Today, art and the artist are suspended one upon another with no net of social values or religious beliefs underneath. In other words, uh, when we look at art, what we find is the thing just hangs in space. Uh, well, now, carrying this over, over to Simon Wheel's uh, word, this is decreation. Uh, immediately you cut off relationships and you meet it with surprise and there it is and the amazing thing is something's there rather than not being there but you don't know how to handle it uh, you don't know its origin and you don't know any categories into which it, fit, it fits and so your sense of decreation here not saying there's nothing there but rather in the other direction that it stands autonomous because you don't know where it came from you haven't any qualification any, uh, any ways to judge it this being so, you don't know how to handle it. And Rosenberg puts, points out this is, a, this is the difficulty with modern art, that you find it doesn't rest in any net of social or religious values, it just hangs in mid-space. It's related to this concept uh, of uh, semen wheel and decreation.
I've quoted sometimes in the past from this little thing of the Voices of Silence by Andre Malro, uh, who is, uh, you, many of you know Malro, he's the central man in artistic things in De Gaulle's France. And uh, his, last, his last section in this book, which he wrote, is called Aftermath of the Absolute. And it runs on like this, this summary of point four of his book, Aftermath of the Absolute. At the same time, fundamentally and completely altered the relationship between the artist and his environment. He is no longer preoccupied with a problem that for thousands of years has held his attention. Achievement of the illusion of the actual. He has come to the end of that and can now leave actuality to the, photogra to the photograph. Quote, and this is a direct quote from, uh, from Mauro himself, the artist is no longer the recorder of the world, he is its rival. And immediately now you have a situation. You're confronted with a, a decreation uh, of the universe. The, the being is there. Uh, there's no net of values. The thing hangs in itself. And you find the artist standing and facing the thing uh, as, its, uh, as its rival. He, he, must, he must face the thing in his own world. He must create something in this because there's no relationship in the thing itself. Now, tonight I want to... Um, I want to deal with, uh, at some length, with the work of uh, thing. This is kind of a Manchester night. Uh, those of you who come from Manchester, uh, this was sent to me by Irwin in the, in Manchester, uh, and it's March 20, 1966. It's very very recent. The Sunday Times Weekly Review, and it's an interesting thing because it's an uh, an interview. Uh, with Jonathan Miller, most, most of you are English or know something of Jonathan Miller. Jonathan Miller at the age of 32 has a diverse background. He is a doctor and neurologist by training, a theater director, a comedian and scriptwriter, a critic, as well as a t television uh, producer. And he's interviewed here by Mark Bar Boxer, feature editor of the Sunday Times. It's a very important thing. It's called Thoughts on the Contemporary Maze. And there's a picture of the maze uh, here before you that they picture as the contemporary maze. I'll just read you the words making up the maze. Pop, television, theater cruelty, publicity, uh, Xerox culture, Robert Pittman, uh, film, Francis Bacon, mediocrity, Marshall McLuhan, teenage culture, and in the very center of the maze, success. A very clever thing that certainly uh, is worth, uh, worth considering. Now, Mark, Mark Boxer, therefore, interviews uh, Jonathan Miller. And uh, you have the situation here. I'll read a fair amount of this, but not at all. Mark Boxer begins the whole thing by saying, Last week, a reverend uh, film critic was interviewed by a French television group. They were mainly interested in what they called the English Revolution. This was symbolized, in their view, by the preponderance of short skirts in London. Do you think a revolution of any kind has taken place? And then Jonathan Miller begins uh, begins to uh, to respond. I should think the the most important thing in the whole thing, though it's not the only thing. And interestingly enough, this man is uh, one of the men, one of the few men in England that's really following McLuhan uh, of the University of Toronto very very closely. And as you know, I feel McLuhan is a very very important man today in opening up a whole new concept of what he calls cool communications. Communications that are not centered in the written word or in content, but first order experience. 
and which he says television is the big medium. But uh, in this, I'll just pick out something in the middle, and then I'll go back and put in its contents later. The question uh, put to this man, do you consider there are no contemporary painters who transcend the ornamental? And uh, Jonathan Miller responds, Francis Bacon and Giacometti are perhaps the last great humanists in European art. Francis Bacon especially. He's absolutely obsessed with the human image. Right in the center of his work, he places the only thing in the universe that matters, which is the human being, ugly, unpleasant, and mortal. Now, this is a very intriguing factor, because this man reaches over and he says, well, there are two men who still stand in the art world uh, as, uh, as representing the great, the great tradition of humanistic art. And who he chooses is Francis Bacon and Giacometti. Now, in our, in our uh, introduction to the Theater of the Absurd, we covered at detail this very fine essay on Francis Bacon. Uh, not saying you'd agree in every word. But nevertheless, uh, this very fine essay by John Russell on Francis Bacon. And you will remember, if you were, if you were here for that, uh, that Francis Bacon is, uh, is a man of destruction. He's a man who says the life has no meaning. And we've quoted from him in this book, uh, in his own direct work, uh, that uh, reality, Francis Bacon, is a man of the absurd. Uh, also, man now recognizes that he is an accident, that he is a completely futile being. Uh, what is this? Well, this is decreation. This is Sigmund uh, Wheel's decreation. He says, we no longer see man as created, therefore he's an accident, and therefore he's futile. Well, of course, we would agree with the logic. If he is an accident, accident he is completely, completely futile. But nevertheless, this is his position. Well, now you come to the intriguing factor, you see, uh, that, uh, that this man says, he, along with Giacometti, are the two last humanists in the art world. Well, the interesting thing is that if Francis Bacon had lived a certain number of years ago, he wouldn't have been considered a humanist at all in this in the sense that would have been accepted then. Because humanism then had a sense of being optimistic, uh, of really feeling man was going to conquer something. And yet Francis Bacon now is said to be the humanist that's left along with Giacometti. And, and instead of uh, being a builder, instead of being optimistic, he stands in this position uh, of the observed. Now, actually, Giacometti, you can think people, different people would say various things about him, uh, but Giacometti, in a very real way, according to quotations from the man himself, stands in exactly the same kind of position as Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon and Giacometti have, this, have two things in common. The first is that they're really interested in man. I think this interview is exactly right there. These people are not, are, are not just interested in ornamentation, uh, but they are interested in man. But both of them say the same thing, and that is, but man, man is caught in a web. He's caught in a web. Now, Giacometti, I have two things here, uh, both from Newsweek concerning him. One at the beginning of the big art show in New York on Giacometti, uh, Newsweek, June 21, 1965, uh, just a short time ago, a year ago. And after that, some of you may have seen it at the London's uh, London's uh, Tate Gallery, because he it was taken there later. And uh, Giacometti is quoted as saying that what he is, uh, is uh, speaks here of his own position, uh, and I'll read that in a moment, uh, but also it quotes in relation to him Jean Genet. 
And he said, it says here that Religia Committee is caught in the same position uh, as Jean uh, Genet. And that is, quote, just what remains a man when all illusion has been stripped away. Now then, in other words, man has had dreams for many, many years. The interesting thing is that this essay on Francis Bacon goes through exactly the same cycle, uh, where we find uh, that Francis Bacon is quoted as saying, man is in his position at the present time because he has lost his, he has lost his, religious, his religious framework. He has lost his dreams, therefore. He's lost his illusions. And losing his illusions, he is caught in this situation. And uh, here we find that this is applied uh, to uh, Giacometti. You have a, uh, 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 this is, uh, any of you who don't know Giacometti's work, this is his work. As soon as you see it, you'll remember it, if you've ever seen any of it. It's very striking. Uh, and it, here in this Newsweek article, it speaks of this as well, and it says, his walking men unerringly stride, stride by one another without contact, but they are men. Uh, not meteorites. And, and this is right. These are men, but they have no contact with each other. They really are isolated. You have, uh, you have real, uh, real alienation here. And at his death, when Giacometti died, uh, the Newsweek carried the story, January 24, 1966, died Alberto Giacometti, 64, world-renowned sculptor who fashioned stark, spiky, craggy, bronze figures that strikingly captured the lonely and apprehensive essence of human life, of a heart attack in Cure, Switzerland, January 11. As one critic said of him, Giacometti managed to express the collective agony of his time. A little further on, in view of Jean-Paul Sartre, every Giacometti sculpture asked the same crucial question, why is there something rather than nothing? But the artist's ha haunting forms and faces appealed not only to existentialists, a repre, uh, retrospective ex exhibition brought nearly 400,000 Giacometti admirers to New York City's Museum of Modern Art last year. The sculptor made his first trip to the United States to attend the show. Then it says a few things about him, and it, you remember uh, that uh, Newsweek said that there's no contact. These, uh, these statues of his are man, they're really men, but without contact with other men, alienation. And then here in this Newsweek thing, it tells this account. It says, one girl posed for him three years without a single exchange of words. And as soon as you say this, you really understand. So, These aren't his statues. These are himself. This is modern man. It isn't just a theoretical alienation, but in a man of real integrity, such as Giacometti undoubtedly was, it was practical alienation. And then they quote him. The last thing in this quotes him thus. There is no hope of expressing my vision of reality, he insisted. Besides, if I did, it would be hideous, something to look away from. Now, the intriguing thing of that is here is Giacometti and Francis Bacon, and this English playwright, uh, Jonathan Miller, says they are, these are the only two last humanist artists left in, in the modern world. Now, we might want to debate that and uh, reject it, but nevertheless, it's an intriguing thing that this man says this. Here, then, who are these humanists? Well, they're people who still say men are men, but they're men in agony. They're men, really, they're men in agony. You have the dilemma, uh, you have the dilemma that man, when he is, looks at himself, finds himself cut off from creation, from being created. Uh, Seaman wheels, decreation. 
Uh, she was a, she was a master at at thinking of this kind of situation and expressing it. She really is very special, very cloudy and so on. But here and there, gems of of brilliance. And her word here, it seems to me, decreation explains the whole situation. The reason the only humanists are left are Gia Cometti and Francis Bacon, interested in men and not just ornamentation or something like this, but in this agony of man, is because they don't know who man is. It is caught in the word decreation. Um, it is interesting going back to the New Statesman again, which quoted uh, Seaman Wheel. Uh, it speaks of art in this way. So this kind of art is a new kind of creation, harsh, a medicinal, remaking reality, quote, in rivalry with one's own wishes. Now this takes it a step further. It's a thing which Giacometti uh, has, uh, seems to uh, fall in with. Uh, when we mentioned uh, Mauro, he says the modern artist is in competition against nature. The object is there. But the new statesman, I think, is quite proper when it says, but it's something more than this. The modern art is in rivalry not only again with what is there, but with man's own wishes. In other words, he wishes it wasn't true. Francis Bacon, Francis Bacon is admirable in facing the nakedness of the reality of modern man. Shia Kometi, it seems to me, is a man which we have to give high marks to my technical word validity in art. The man who says honestly what he believes is really there. And as the New Statesman says, these men are making works of art against their own desires, their own wishes. They wish it wasn't this way. They can't stand it, and yet they make it. They really make it. So it's in competition, not only with the world that is there, but it is in competition as well uh, with, their, with the, the mannishness of man and his dreams. This is the tension I'm trying to point out. Modern man sees uh, the, the problem modern man sees the problem that as soon as you take away a man's illusions really what you do is destroy him this is the this is the basic concept uh, i've quoted a number of times the words of ibsen if you take away a man's lie uh, you take away his hope but i never knew the source and uh, people are nice to me very often and when i quoted this in wheaton college in the intercession period uh, a month or six weeks ago uh, somebody was very kind enough to to have done what I should have done for myself, and that's went and found the quotation for me. So I can give you a bit more. And it's uh, in, from Ibsen, The Master Builder by A.E. E. Zucker, Z-U-C-K-E-R, uh, yes, published by Henry Holton Company, page 191, uh, where Zucker is dealing with Ibsen's The Wild Duck. The Wild Duck. And uh, this is what we find. A profligate uh, and a woman of unsavory reputation enter upon a marriage founded upon entire and unreserved candor on both sides. And the, that's quote from Ibsen, and that's the end of the quote, and then Zucker picks up. And the telling of truth turns out to be a wicked, caddish, and despicable act. Dr. Relling, the incarnation of cynicism, substitutes for ideals the good native word lies and sums up the whole story, quote, from the play. Rob the average man of his life illusions, and you rob him of his happiness by at the same stroke. And here is Ibsen. And this undoubtedly is a big thrust in Ibsen's work. If you just take away man's lies, you really take away any hope he has whatsoever. The only way, the only way, uh, the only way you can uh, have a man 
modern man with hope is to bind him in a lie. Now, of course, this would tie in immediately with the great attempt for evolutionary optimistic humanism in England today uh, with, uh, with Huxley, uh, wherein Huxley uh, just says this, that as man is evolved uh, by chance, for some strange reason, man functions better if he thinks there is a God, therefore there, there is no God, we will, we, will have, we will make a religion. This is exactly Julian Huxley's big thrust. And the interesting thing is that uh, you have two humanisms today, one represented by Giacometti and Francis Bacon and the general humanist direction. Uh, and that is uh, a pessimism, agony, uh, anguish. Uh, and then you have, a, uh, you have what in your British universities is fairly common, and that is the optimistic humanist. But the optimistic humanist, without any exception, always roots his optimism in uh, something like Julian Huxley's position. In other words, the optimism is only possible on the basis uh, of a falsehood. And as I've pointed out over and over again, something I didn't realize up to six months ago, but I think it's very significant, and that is the optimistic humanists have produced no art. The optimistic humanists have no art at all. And the reason they have no art is for a very simple reason. If the optimistic humanists made an art, it would look very much like the pre-Raphaelite paintings and all modern men would laugh at them. So they have no art form. The art form, I think is Jonathan, whatever his name is, is right in saying, here are the humanists. The humanists today are Francis Bacon and Giacometti. But the optimistic humanists, who, who are trying to still give the old kind of optimistic answer that the humanists used to give, these are all founded, rooted back into the same area of, uh, of uh, Giacometti, or, or into the area that we have uh, seen here uh, of Ibsen, take away a man's lie and you take away his hope. In other words, it's always a lie. Whatever's a hope is always a lie. That's the only, this is it. You remember the double neos in cinema uh, that we pointed out. Uh, they're, they say uh, we, make, we ask questions and we give statements, uh, but we have no easy answer, and every answer is too easy, so for, therefore there's no answer. And this is, this is the position that we find here. Now, going a bit further, uh, going a bit further in this same direction, uh, we find there that man in his logical position of being the decreated one, remembering the definition of decreated, being the decreated one, being the one at the center of the universe, being autonomous, he finds himself in one of two positions. He finds himself either as a machine and accepts himself as a machine, or he finds himself in agony, either one or the other. If he's logical to his presuppositions, he either accepts his place as a machine or he finds himself in agony. Always I would relate back in this particular postscript to the Theater of the Absurd to Sigmund Weil's uh, concept of uh, decreation. Now you have constantly in, the, uh, in this direction the loss of the human. The loss of the human. Uh, uh, as Dr. Ruckmacher mentioned the other night, this city that Modrian helped to, hoped to build. But it wouldn't be a human city. And we'll see in a moment that it ties in with this review here on this British television. Andy Warhol uh, and uh, his loss of the human, where he says, uh, in reality, which he's, he's quoted as saying, I wish I were a machine. I just wish I were a machine. Because being a man is, is intolerable. Something like this. Now, going back to this um, 
Weekly Review, Sunday Times Weekly Review, from Jonathan Miller, I'd pick up and put some of this in a bit more context. And he says this, One of the basic themes of in ornament is rhythmic repetition of certain simple shapes. In early times, the sources of designs from which one drew to produce these repetitions were natural objects, and nature is full of repetitive themes. For example, the tree, which prints off leaves almost like a printing press. And then a little further on this. Nature pressed very close to the city. That's in the, in the past. Nature pressed very close to the city. We have pushed nature so far from the city that we have forgotten about leaves. They don't naturally come to mind when we are thinking of repetition. The things that are at hand are topography, for example. Uh, we are surrounded by topography, a kind of modern technological forest. Much of pop art is about the excitement of finding how pleasant the repetitive forms of type and posters and things of this sort are. We're, we're getting a sort of Xerox culture. I'm sure you all know what Xerox is. It's a machine in which you put in anything you want to and it outcomes copies by the thousands. Uh, you can just sit there and you can get a thousand copies as easy as not if you just keep your hand on the button. Uh, painters are retiring more and more from the surface of the, can of the canvas leaving fewer and fewer of their own footprints on it, footprints on it. Silk screen, linking paint, mechanical tints, anything to avoid touching the canvas with your own brush strokes. So now he's gone through. We, the city, and this is really where Modian dreamed and never achieved happily. But we are pushing the nature away. Man is making his own. And you remember, of course, here, uh, Andy Warhol's new nightclub, Plastic Inevitable. Plastic inevitable. As I was saying at the table, a man like Warhol isn't saying nothing. And what he's saying may be horrible, but it's not nothing. He really knows what he's saying when he chooses the name Plastic Inevitable. It kind of reminds me of Modrian's dream in this city of his. So he says, uh, first, uh, Jonathan Miller, we're pushing away, uh, the city is pushing away nature. Secondly, we're getting a, a Xerox culture. A repetition of the things man himself has made. Campbell soup cans, Campbell soup cans, Campbell soup cans, zip, 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 like this. Thirdly, and of course, Warhol it is, he charges $8,000 for the painting of a Campbell soup can, which he never puts a brush to. His assistants make it with, brush, with a silk screen. And this is right, according to their own testimony. But then fourthly, his fourth point this man is making, painters seem to shun the human image. Art is unmanned, as spacecraft can be unmanned. Then he goes on and he says this, which again is very significant and roots back into the concept of decreation and modern's dilemma being, modern man's dilemma being rooted in the concept of decreation. Consider the leaves of Southwell, those embossed decorations on the ceiling or the corbels of Southwell Cathedral. However, if the cathedral were only filled with leaves, the cathedral would have lost its point. What is important about the cathedral is that it converges on the eastern end, where a complicated moral celebration is made. These oramental themes are subsidiary to, the eye to that eye line. In the secular cathedral of modern art, there is no east end at all. I've never heard it said better than that. That's tremendous. Then he goes on and he adds this. But the oramental impulse is not everything in art. It lacks moral, inter moral interest. In other words, human interest, man interest, mannishness is my word, mannishness interest. And finally, what gives the arts any momentum and makes them survive at all is that they are about what human beings are doing. 
and this is certainly exactly true. Then comes this little bit that I gave you before as the center, but now would repeat in this exact context. Do you consider there are no contemporary painters who transcend the ornamental? Francis Bacon and Gia Cometti are the last great humanists in European art, etc., etc., etc. Now as we come, therefore, let's see what we're saying. We're saying, do you want to know why modern art is where it is? Well, modern art is where it is, and you always must remember art is always doing two things. Art is always making culture. It is always producing the consensus, but it's always a reflection of the consensus. So these two are always together. These two always come together. Uh, the modern art wouldn't be accepted if there wasn't an audience that thought this way. This must always be seen. And just say in parenthesis, if we're going to produce Christian artists, we have to produce an audience who will listen to the Christian artists. There's no use producing the Christian artists unless Christianity's produced an audience for him as well. It has to go hand in hand. So what he's saying is here, really, do you want to know what's happening? Well, it's related to the fact that there is no, uh, there is no, uh, uh, there's nothing like you have in the cathedral, uh, in the Southwell Cathedral, in, secular, in the secular cathedral, there is no East End at all. In other words, there's nothing there. There's no, no, real, no real point to the whole thing. And so, therefore, you get merely a repetition, a Xerox repetition of man-made uh, man uh, uh, things used as ornament, as he says. This isn't all there is to modern art, of course. But it is one view that this man is giving that I think has some deep insights, though we might not agree with it all. Now we go further uh, and uh, in this review, and you remember what Terry Southern said. Terry Southern, of course, is the man who wrote Candy. He wrote also The Magic Christian, a man who has written many pornographic things, but a man whose pornography has a philosophic a concept behind it. It doesn't make it any better. In a way, it makes it more horrible. Uh, but nevertheless, it has. And in this essay, you remember that I read in Writers in Revolt, uh, in the introduction, which seems to be from Terry Southern, he makes a distinction. He says, well, in the communist countries, uh, they have an arbitrary law, which is their integration point. But in our Western countries, psychology is our integration point. Therefore, we find uh, that, he says, because psychology is our integration point, we are the first culture in history that has gotten rid of crime. In other words, he simply means Psychology is that which integrates us, and therefore the moral values are gone. We, we, we no longer call crime crime. It doesn't that we don't have crime, but we no, longer, we no longer call it crime. Now, the interesting thing is that this man deals on the same subject, this Jonathan Miller. And I would just point out again that if you think these people don't understand, and if you think the BBC broadcasts and the plays don't understand, you must understand the depth of this man, Jonathan Miller, in, in, his, uh, in what he says. This man really understands. You might not like his conclusions, you might not like what he says, but to think that it is, uh, but to miss the point, uh, to miss the point that it, is, uh, that it is knowing really misses the whole thing. This man understands. We who are Bible-believing Christians, or whatever you're going to call us, I would to God that our people understood as well as the playwrights understood. And then we would know we would know where the battle is, and we would know what to do, and where not to compromise. Uh, these men really understand. Picking up now, further on in this same interview, uh, he deals with the problem of psychology. And it's really intriguing. And this is the question runs like this. It is generally thought that the modern media 
have led to an over-permissive society. Is there anything in this? And then here's the, the answer. Of course, there, this is a terrible oversimplification. And then he goes on, however. The mass media has simply broadcast popular and user rather coarse in forms of the ideas which came out of psychology and modern sociology. Not that these disciplines ever advocated uh, uh, licentiousness anyway. That is just the way journalism boiled it down. Now, I would just say I don't believe that quite, at least in a way it's often practiced, because often we have surely all of us who have dealt with people in psychological needs have found uh, that girls, boys, have been sent by these psychologists and been told to live an absolutely open, uh, moral life in order not to have repressions and so forth. So he's being a little too kind uh, to the uh, modern psychologist. But nevertheless, what he's saying is, uh, he's carrying it into the modern media, and he's saying, well, they didn't mean it to be so this way, but the modern media has made it this way. Well, now then, I would say he's too kind to many psychologists that are naturalistic psychologists. The psychologist also is caught in the, in the dilemma of decreation. So he doesn't know who this man is in front of him. And he's just deal with him as being, capital B, standing there in front of him, a thing in itself, uh, without categories and without origins. Uh, but nevertheless, this man, who's uh, an expert in modern communications, he carries it on. He shows the modern media has tended to carry it even beyond the psychologist. So I'll read some more. And unless you explain this very carefully, it could be made to look as if morality had been chucked out of the window along with the idea of blame. And there is a very real danger here. If you emphasize the idea of, ca if you emphasize the idea of causality in human behavior too much, you may destroy the whole notion of responsibility, not just criminal responsibility. By, by saying that a man's crimes can be put down to social and psychological causes beyond his control, you also undermine the idea of virtue also. Uh, we may well have threatened the foundations of the individual, uh, individual will by harping so much on the antecedent causes of human behavior. And when the mass media got hold of the idea and began pumping it out in a dilute form, perhaps society was in danger of being brainwashed into a, motiv uh, a motiveless, irresponsibility. Now, if you ever feel, ever feel anything of tension here between the logical absurdity of modern man uh, and the humanist, you feel it here. Here is a man who says, well, we've come into a psychological cul-de-sac and we have thrown out uh, responsibility and these other things. And now, perhaps we've gone too far in the mass media because what we find is, is what we're losing is virtue. What we're losing is morality. What we're losing is responsibility. What we're losing is motive. Well, of course he's right. But what, what he fails to say here is the fact that this is absolutely the logic of modern man's position. So if you begin with a decreation, if you begin with modern man really only being a, a product of chance, you have the impersonal plus time plus chance, you, you do come out with man being a determined being. And nobody has been able to show at all how you can get anything except a determined being if you begin with the impersonal plus time plus chance. And so consequently, that's why, as I've kept pointing out, the Marquis de Sade uh, is, really, is really an important man to these people. Not because he whipped girls for sexual pleasure, but because he whipped girls for sexual pleasure because he was a determinist. And because he was a determinist and was logical in his determinism, he whipped girls for pleasure. Well, now then, uh, the difficulty is if you start out with decreation, how are you going to keep these words? Responsibility. Morality. 
virtue, motive. The simple fact is you don't. And he has already, in mentioning Giacometti and, and Bacon, pointed out to artists that have the plain courage to paint and to sculpt in a way that says this, I am in agony. This is where he is. So this man would like somehow, like a magician taking a rabbit out of a hat, he would like to cut the, after he's cut anything that gives a solid base for such a word as morality or virtue, uh, motivation, responsibility, he wants a rabbit out of the hat, but the rabbit won't come. The rabbit won't come. Not as far as logic is concerned. If you're going to get the rabbit out of the hat, it has to be in the area, the upper story, as I speak in my lectures, uh, of the non-rational, the non-logical. Whether you use theological terms or secular terms, this is where you take the rabbit out of the hat. And the modern theology is, is one of the magicians of taking rabbits out of the hat, of saying, look at it optimistically by using religious words that seem which give an illusion of communication when rationality and logic uh, wouldn't give any, uh, any hope at all for the whole thing. But this man senses this. A psychologist has done something. The modern media have taken it further. And now we're in a jam. Well, what's in a jam? Well, it's the mass that's beginning to act this way. And then those of you who remember my insisted point uh, that after the intellectuals began to think this way, the next step was through the mass media, after the arts, then the mass media coming down to the mass of people. That's just what he's talking about. And these people are frightened. They're frightened because the mass is be are beginning to act the way their position would indicate is the logic of the way to act. Now, the, there is a problem of trying to cure this too simply, and uh, of really trying to cure it too simply, and Jonathan Miller deals with this. And it's interesting, though he's British, he reaches over into America in the Goldwater campaign uh, to point out a problem. But interestingly enough, he shows a much greater comprehension of what really was involved in the Goldwater campaign than many Americans seem to have ever thought out, which is curious, in a sense. I'll read you a couple, just a couple sections. When Goldwater started his campaign in 1964, he wasn't simply running on a platform of anti-communism. He was also running on a campaign of the decaying morals of our society. For example, he produced a film, which he junked early on in the campaign, showing how our cities were becoming immoral and corrupt and how juvenile crime was on the rise and that immorality was rife on television. It has counterparts in this country, that's Britain, of course, with a clean-up television campaign, uh, with the anti-BBC campaign, and with the Robert Pittman anti-Lilac uh, establishment bit. And then he goes on further. He says these things have nothing to do with communism as such. It's much more to do with a fear that the simple virtues are threatened, that we are being administered and therapized out of our personal freedom. At its, simple, at its simplest level, this seems to me perf a perfectly legitimate motive. It's only vile when it becomes a campaign of redneck prejudice and reaction. It represents people's wish to be free agents. But of course the old virtues can't be flogged into being again. You can't hang people back into simplicity and honor. And this man really understands something. So now you have, you have those who hold the modern view, the decreation, and it produces a certain things logically. Uh, then, you have, uh, then you have people who just say, well, we're going to beat back the old virtues. But he points out, you can't beat them back. It can't be done. It's just impossible. You can't hang people into virtue. And in a way, he's really right here, I would say. Another way to say this, of course, is the fact that 
that living in a post-Christian culture, having no longer an adequate base, we can't expect the virtues to stand. We just can't expect them to stand. And this is the tragedy of the whole situation. It isn't just, it isn't, we mustn't seek for too simple a solution. We mustn't seek for too simple a solution. We just can't say the, the, there's a, uh, an easy solution here, an easy solution here, an easy solution there, a utopian solution. It's far more profound. As I pointed out, that Senhor, the president of Senegal, makes so plain that the real problem is the way men think. And modern man thinks uh, in the area of not antithesis, uh, but on the, in the area of synthesis and these other ways, uh, the dialectical thought on both sides of the Iron Curtain. The, there's no such thing as reality uh, in the area of truth and, these, uh, and virtue. Consequently, you can just expect the, mo the mass media to pick it up, carry it on. And to try to fight merely the results is really a too simple solution. It's too simple a solution. And yet at the same time, we must realize there's something to be said about these who raise their voice, for example, against the BBC uh, and uh, the things which, which would destroy up into the Midlands uh, uh, the, uh, in England, uh, the, uh, the old virtues. This is, a, this is the modern man's mass use of communication carrying it out down into the mass of people as well. And no less a person, and this is why I said it was something of a Manchester night, because the, when I was speaking at Manchester, some of you were there, uh, this paper was handed to me uh, by someone uh, in Manchester, a fellow who studied here uh, with us at Farrell House. And this is the New Statesman of March 11, 1966. New Statesman, March 11, 1966. And it's by no less a person. It's the centerpiece uh, of the New Statesman for that uh, issue. And it's by no less a person than Malkin Muggeridge. Very interesting. It's called The Great Liberal Death Wish. Now, actually, I think his terminology is wrong. I'd say The Great Humanist Death Wish. And then I'd like to talk to Muggeridge about that. I think he's chosen the wrong, the wrong uh, terminology. It isn't liberal, though it, it's the humanist, the, the humanist situation. And toward the end of his article, this is what Marguerite says, which ties it up with BBC with something of a bang, I would point out. Orwell, in his enchanting fable, Animal Farm, in his brilliant analysis of doublespeak and doublethink, as projected by the Ministry of Truth, based, as he told me, not on a Nazi or a fascist or Soviet model, but on the BBC. And that's breathtaking. So Muggeridge says, well, I know Orwell, and he tells me that uh, this uh, propaganda situation, he didn't have in mind uh, the Soviet uh, propaganda machine. He had in mind the BBC. This is what he had in mind. And we must understand that, again, you can't say the BBC or uh, the, the, the better plays <coughs> in the sense of being serious plays, the better movies in the sense of being, or cinema being better, uh, serious movies. You, you, you can say, well, they've caused all this, but you've got to be careful because the other side of it, as I point out, just like art, in one way they cause it, but in another way it wouldn't be there if the people didn't, weren't all that ready like this. The BBC wouldn't, wouldn't, be, in, wouldn't be accepted uh, in its thrust uh, of carrying over the new mentality. Uh, and in this sense, a brainwashing proposition. Not the state doesn't brainwash anybody in Britain. It's just our culture brainwashes them. But it wouldn't be in this position if the British people hadn't already changed, if the church had kept its, its place, if the theology had stood fast and provided the foundation. It just wouldn't. Uh, so Muggeridge puts his, uh, 
his finger on this. Now, I'm interested uh, in this. Um, Something I hadn't realized up until a recent time, then I got hold of this quotation, uh, that in 1931, when the Broadcasting House, and those of you who have gone to John Stott's uh, church, you know where that is, the broadcasting place, uh, throw a stone at it, John Stott's church steps, um, the, this is what was, uh, this was what was carved on the walls. Now just think, this is 1931, and the BBC, quote, This temple of the arts and muses is dedicated to Almighty God by the first governors of broadcasting in the year 1931, Sir John Wright being Director General. It is their prayer and that good seed may bring forth a good harvest, that all things hostile to peace or pure may be banished from this house, and that the people, applying their ears to whatever things are beautiful and honest and of good report, may tread the paths of wisdom and uprightness. That's 1931. And the last time I was in Britain, I happened to be there at the time I had the television turned on, and uh, the the famous four-letter word was used on it. A long, long cry uh, from 1931. Really, we live in a different age. We really live in a different age. And this is a reflection that the mentality, the mentality really has changed. Going on with Muckeridge, uh, in this uh, Malcolm Muckeridge's article in the New Statesman, I'd read a few more things. And he's, uh, he's lashing out at what he calls liberalism and its results. He says, instead of a brotherhood, it has led to a collectivity. Instead of freedom, brainwash conformism. How did it come about that the pursuit of peace led to ever more ferocious wars? That the pursuit of happiness to ever larger and more crowded psychiatric wards, of knowledge to ever greater credulity and vacantness, of security to ever greater intensing, uh, intensifying sense of helplessness and loss of identity. What he's saying is here, humanism, though he calls it liberalism, it doesn't matter much, it's a matter of promised is this, instead of that we got that. How come? Well, Mike, uh, Malcolm Melkeridge himself, of course, needs to be told. It's because, dear old fella, it's because uh, these people really believe the same thing you have espoused in a way, and that is decreation. This is the reason. You, you don't understand. It isn't just a case of, uh, of a few liberals here and there with long hair uh, that have brought this to pass. What it is really is the humanist decreation, and this is where it's always going to come out. But Muckeridge, of course, is keen, and he sees the results, and he's screaming against it. He says here, liberalism is the primrose path to extinction. And I just agree with him. Uh, he speaks here of universal suffrage with a promise of democracy, one man, one vote, and then he shrugs his shoulders and he says, but look where we are. Whether in the Anglo-American style of the all-powerful party machine fortified by mass communication media or in the communist style. Some of us may squirm at that, not like it very much and not agree, but he has a point something he's saying here that you can't shrug off. He speaks of the African states and the fact that the promise of one man, one vote has been cruel in a sense because in many cases it hasn't fulfilled its promise. He goes on down further and he, I, he brings in the same area of morality. He uses the term permissive morality, the same thing you remember that uh, Jonathan Miller used uh, in the article I've been reading from. 
and this is a bit longer in Muckeridge. Yet again, consider the application of liberalism to human behavior and the resultant so-called permissive morality. No subversive conspirer, uh, conspirer could hope to produce more doubt, confusion, and ultimately moral paralysis than do liberal attitudes like the Bishop of Woolwich to later Chatterley's lo lover case and the Archbishop of Canterbury's to the Wolfton to report. Such attitudes may, for all I know, be justified in the light of Anglican Christianity. They may even be admirable in the eyes of an Anglican deity, though I find difficulty in believing that any of his past accredited spokesmen on earth, like St. Paul, would have found them other than abhorrent. You have to know Muckeridge to, in, to really understand, to understand how Muckeridge this really is, uh, such a statement. But he has a good point. He's saying uh, this liberalism doesn't end with politics. It's the same mentality, exactly the same thing, carried down into our theology. And what it's producing is chaos, is what he's saying. A little further on, Nietzsche, no liberal, announced that God was dead. The same deity's liberal uh, ministrants today seek to confute Nietzsche by stuffing an empty skin with Freudian entrails. And that's magnificent. That's really magnificent. It's exactly, you see, the same thing as Jonathan Miller uh, dealt with in his point. Only Jonathan Miller was kind of defending it. Muckeridge says the whole thing is, uh, is ruinous. Then he enters the world of art. And he says it has brought about the death of art. And he quotes Picasso. Um, and I don't know where he quotes him from. But he quotes Picasso as saying, uh, saying that art is just guttering out. He comes down a little further and he says, Likewise, the Joycean incoherence of Finnegan's Wake has been carried further uh, by writers like Burroughs and Beckett into a total nothingness of words. The great liberal death wish encompasses the final extinction of meaning itself. And this is exactly what we've been doing. We've been talking in our uh, Beckett in the Theater of the Absurd and in the previous le lecture, number 50 on the tape list, uh, dealing with uh, the modern American writers, the novel and the writers, the black writers, that was Burroughs, you remember. So he puts them together just where I have put them together in my lecture. Burroughs, the black writer, Beckett, the theater of the absurd, and he says what all this leads to is a nothingness of words, a devaluation of words that brings with it a, deva a final extinction of meaning itself. And then this phrase, which again is the genius of a man like Muckeridge with words. It was not liber it was liberalism. It was liberalism, not God that died. Nietzsche had confused the two. And this is tremendous. That liberalism, humanism, the, the criers of decreation, they didn't know it. They said God is dead. But in reality what they're saying is we kill ourselves. That's just what he means here. They have said God is dead, but in reality what they've killed is themselves. They're dead. And as he's gone through, and he shows this whole situation. Then he gives this little bit on Orwell. Uh, and I'll read it again. Orwell in his enchanting fable Animal Farm in his brilliant analysis of doublespeak and doublethink as projected by the Ministry of Truth based, as he told me, not on a Nazi or fascist or Soviet model but on the BBC, etc. And then his closing sentence is this. For our dark ages, uh, for our dark ages, it is we ourselves who are turning out the lights, fondly supposing that we are turning them on. And this is a magnificent statement, surely, of where modern man has come to. He has shouted humanism. He has shouted man is free. He has shouted man is autonomous. Decreation. And then suddenly he finds, to use Muckridge's tremendous words here, 
He thinks he's turning on the lights, but in reality, you just come out in this very black place. You really come out in this very, very black place where the only humanist, who do you find as a humanist artist? Poor Francis Bacon, with all his genius. Who do you find? You find Giacometti with all his tears. This is where you come out, among those people who aren't cabbages. The cabbages may not know any better, or they may be beginning to shout lies. We'll tell them lies. But a man with real integrity like Giacometti, he says, if I could only picture what I see as the reality of man, it would be so horrible, nobody would look at it. Nobody would look at it. Here is integrity. And this is what Muckeridge is putting his finger on. You find this in the various areas. Uh, I was speaking to some of you the other day, or yesterday or today or whenever it was, on avant-garde music in New York. And this is tied up with John Cage. And you remember in my lectures on, uh, on um, apologetics, I've made a good bit of John Cage. And this is, these were uh, back just last year in New York, avant-garde music. They had a avant-garde festival. And so I have two, uh, speaking of Xerox, two Xerox uh, copies uh, of the New York Times. Um, the New York Times of August 27, 1965, when the, uh, the avant-garde music festival opened, and New York Times uh, in September 13, 1965, when the avant-garde musical closed. It was quite a length. And uh, this is the first thing when it was just opened, music, the avant-garde. Uh, Nan Jung Pyek opens Judson Hall Festival by Howard Klein in the New York Times. Uh, he relates this to a happening, which is quite proper, which is just what you remember, those of you who were fortunate enough to hear Dr. Ruckmacher uh, lecture on... Um, uh, Marcel Duchamp, uh, and uh, showed a picture last time of Marcel Duchamp. He's the, he's the father of the happenings. It calls it here Neo-Dada. Now, you remember what Dada is. Dada was the art form that said, really, Dada is nothingness, nothingness. It, it was before surrealism and so forth, and it calls this Neo-Dada, and it ties it up with the music of John Cage. I won't go into detail, but say John Cage is the man who composes music with tossing coins and by chance. Uh, it speaks here of one of the pieces. Mr. Cage in his 45 speaker in 1945. The thing to do is keep the head alert but empty, is what he says. Uh, and this is, uh, it's funny, you see, but it's only funny if you're ready to cry because this is really saying you, you're, you're dead if you think. It's Ibsen's take away a man's lie and you take away his hope. It's the factor uh, that, uh, that Leonardo da Vinci was struggling with, and that is if you have the rational and you have the logical and you have only modern mathematics, you only come to the particular and mechanics. So you're dead. So what you do is to take the leap, the Kierkegaard's leap, whether you put it into Jean-Paul Sartre's terms, uh, Heidegger's terms, whether you put it in Carl Jasper's terms, or whether you put it in the new theology's terms, it doesn't matter, or whether you put it in the mystical leap of, leap of somebody like Salvador Dali, it doesn't matter. What you have to do is just leap up here. You must stop thinking, because as soon as you think, you're dead. Decreation, using this word again, if, you're, if you think, you're dead. If you think, you're dead. So what you have to do is keep your mind alert, but be careful not to think, whatever that means. I'm not quite sure, I must say. The high point of the evening, now this is tied up with the happenings and then uh, that uh, come from Marcel Duchamp, 
that Dr. Ruckermachter said so so tremendously that uh, Marcel Duchamp is the is the genius of making you dirty. Uh, he's the genius of making you dirty. He paints something, he puts a title on it, and then you become dirty by looking for the dirty thing in the picture when there's nothing dirty in the picture, as uh, Dr. Rookmacher pointed out so very well uh, in this uh, illustration he threw on the screen last Thursday night. And um, the high point of the evening was when Charlotte Mormon, now I'll just say I lectured, uh, gave some of this material at the intercession period in Wheaton, and then interestingly enough, the same night that I finished, when I was m marking everybody's exams and stayed up to 7 o'clock in the morning, somebody came running up to my door, pounded on it, and said, you must come down to the television, the educational television. Uh, John Cage and his people are on the television. So down I went, and uh, I saw dear Charlotte Mormon. She was there playing her cello away uh, and uh, breaking dishes. Uh, the high point of the evening was when Charlotte Mormon brought out her cello to play variations on the theme of Saint-Saëns. The basic gimmick here was her costume. She wore nothing but a cellophane wreath, or sheath. And, um, <laughs> sheath. Um, it's better to have the original and not Xerox. <laughs> um, but you, you, it's always something dirty in this. And that's because sex is something maybe you can get your fingers on, something like this. And, and there's always something dirty in this whole thing. Every happening, almost, that there's been uh, is tied up with something dirty. There's a, hardly a happening that you find. It doesn't have some dirty thing in it. And here she is. Uh, she was assisted by Mr. Pyack at the piano, a man in black who, on all, four, uh, on all fours, served as a bench. So she sat on him. And a man lying in front of her who held her shallow's end pin in his teeth. Uh, midway in the performance of Sansen's uh, The Swan, Miss Mormon, with the aid of Mr. Pyack, climbed the six-foot ladder and immersed herself in an oil drum filled with water. Then she climbed back out, of the, uh, out the cellophane sticking to her body, and the two completed playing The Swan. This is real death. And you say, well, this is a joke. But it isn't a joke. The New York Times carries it very seriously as a vanguard, uh, a vanguard festival. It's not really a joke. It's only a joke if we're stupid. And it, we only laugh at it if we're stupid. You've got to cry. Because whether you know it or not, this is really modern modern man trying to be honest. If there's anything that deserves validity, these people deserve validity, in my term of validity, of expressing honestly who you are and what you think. The, this, is not, this is not cheating. Uh, Gia Cometti screams and says, look, this is where I am. Uh, but these people say it this way. But these people are really saying the thing of the generation which surrounds us, which leads to the problem of London and the whole question that was brought up uh, in this, uh, this interview. The last, um, the last uh, after the thing was all over, there's this other thing in the New York Times that completes it, uh, tells about the end of it. Nan June Pack, uh, whose action music began the festival on August 25, put his back into the cage work, literally when he stripped to the waist and knelt before Miss Mormon, who bowed and fingered his back. Now, I saw her do that on this television program. It was very startling. She puts aside her shell and plays on his, on his backbone. And it isn't funny. It isn't supposed to be funny. It's something very serious about all this. Incidentally, this Miss Mormon's not a freak. Uh, she was the festival's producer. 
and uh, is considered a very serious person in this realm, in the same way that John Cage himself would be. Uh, but it is dirty, and, and you laugh, and you cry, and then you, you, you really must end crying. Young women in bathing suits sauntered on and off the floor in the center of the audience area. Now, I'm not reading from Playboy, incidentally. I'm reading from the New York Times. You don't forget it. In the center of the audience area, not the stage, carrying flowers, toy guns, and each other. Another in a bright red union suit flapped her trapdoor provocatively at a young man who responded predictably. This is the New York Times reporting this, and these people are serious people. This is not a joke. In general, though, depressing is the word for the evening of the and for most of the 13-part series and so forth. And it goes on a bit more. Uh, this is what Muggeridge means. Muggeridge really understands something here. He really understands it, and he's... Uh, this avant-garde music, I would say, is a perfect illustration of uh, a Muggeridge thesis. And uh, I would rest it there in saying decreation equals equals absurdity on a profound level. It's not absurdity in a light level. It's absurdity of Jean-Paul Sartre's No Exit, Hell, these other plays, but it's absurdity that really can't be expressed in good syntax. It has to be expressed in the theater of the absurd, but in which you use, use uh, destroy syntax and you devaluate language. But don't forget that this is only the first half. This is only the first half because when I ended with uh, the, uh, the summary, you remember, that I used last time, uh, I pointed out that the theater of the absurd, as Estling pointed out, doesn't really end with only absurdity, but after they've destroyed everything, they really still hope for a first-order communication. And Estling itself dribbled off at the end, hoping something would kind of drop out, the way Terry Southern does from his writings, and even gave sort of a vague pantheism. It just hangs in midair. Well, what's wrong? Well, you remember what I said this postscript was. It was, first of all, all these things, decreation leads to absurdity, but secondly, that men are still men and they can't stand it. And that's the point I want to make in the ending of this coming to, now in the second half of this lecture. And that is, it leads, rationality of modern man leads to absurdity, but modern man can't stand it. No man can stand it. And consequently, therefore, I want to dwell a bit on the fact that men can't really get away from being human. You remember, again, I'm deliberately tying many of these things in with Dr. Ruckmacher's lecture of the last couple of weeks, because that was a point he made as well. And uh, both he and I, of course, uh, after years of study and considering this thing with all seriousness, we feel this is the key. And that is, modern, no man, modern man or no other man, really can get away from being made in the image of God. He can call himself a machine, he can swear, he can curse as beautifully as Picasso ever cursed in some of his pictures, but he ends up still being a man. He still ends up being a man. And this is the testimony of God to men. Men can't get away from this. So now I've come to the second half, uh, a half that I think has something to do with practical apologetics, with communicating to the 20th century people but also understanding why in modern art you find attention. Often you say, but they go to absurdity and then all of a sudden I see this that doesn't fit. Well, I think uh, this would be the reason, and uh, this is what, again, Dr. Ruckmacher said is the reason for this, and that is these men are still men. So they can say absurdity, and yet they still fall in love. So you can say absurdity, and yet you can have uh, this, uh, this terrific thing that Picasso made of, uh, of his wife, 
uh, Olga uh, when he married her, uh, this, uh, this Russian ballet dancer, and repeated it again uh, when he fell in love with his present woman. And he, uh, he painted her the same way. There's beauty here. They're really human beings, no matter what they say. And one of the sharpest things I've ever read in this is John Updike. I have a quotation from John Updike. And it runs like this. I do not recall my first doubts. This is John Updike. U-P-D-I-K-E, of course. I do not recall my first doubts. I doubted, perhaps, abnormally little. And when they came, they never roosted on the branches of the tree, but attacked the roots. If the first article of the creed stands, the rest follows as water flows downhill. And he's absolutely right. And what is the first article of the creed? I believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth. This is it. And this is, this is uh, Simon Wheel's de creation in contrast to this. Not Dyke understands. He says, if God is there, who is the creator, everything's in his place. Everything else follows very, very simply. Everything follows very simply. That's why I keep saying here at Labre to every worker who comes, uh, maybe that's false, maybe I forget to say it sometime, but I mean to say it to every worker, and that is, with modern men, always play the game against the hard wall, is God there? There's no other way to deal with modern men. There's no other way to deal with modern men except face the fact, is God there? And be sure that you understand why you know he's there. You, the, the discussion, the communication must be in the area of truth. And not just an abstract truth, but the truth of what is. And the end of what is, is the final environment that God is there. And everything else on this side of the ultimate reality of God has been created by God. And this is, this is where we must fight our battle if we're going to talk to real 20th century people. Now he goes on. Updike goes on, however. If the first article of the creed stands, the rest flow, follows as water flows downhill. That God, at a remote place in time, took upon himself the form of a, the, of a Syrian carpenter and walked the earth willfully healing and abusing and affirming and grieving, appeared to me quite in character with the author of the grass. I don't know if I've ever anything more beautiful than that. When you, when you look at Christ and who he is and what he did, uh, it fits exactly with the first, uh, first statement, God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. There's a, there's a conformity here. There's a uniformity here. It doesn't take you by surprise. The creator who created the grass, you're not surprised that he did the other. It fits, is what Updike is saying. The mystery that more puzzled me as a child was the incarnation of my ego, that, uh, that somehow a pre-existent I in a speck so specifically situated a million, among the millions of history. Why was I, I? The arbitrariness of it astounded me. In comparison, nothing was too marvelous. And this surely is the beginning of talking to modern man. Updike understands something. He says, when I had doubts, it didn't root off in the branches somewhere, but it really attacked the roots. And that is, God isn't there. Just God isn't there, and the whole thing's finished. But he says, I am left with a mystery. And the mystery really is greater than anything else. And that is, why am I here? And this is really the problem. Modern man's problem, just as I've repeated so many times in my lectures, Nietzsche says God is dead. But modern man then must, as, as two and two makes four, say man is dead. 
If you start with decreation, you find no place for man as man. And yet at the same time, Updike can't get, get away from his basic problem. And the basic problem is, I'm really here. It isn't just being is there, you see. Jean-Paul Sartre, the basic philosophic problem is why is something there rather than nothing being there. It's something more personal than that. And that is, why am I here? This peculiar thing I know is myself, and I know it so well. I know it so well. And here you feel this tension. Uh, decreation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, absurdity, and yet, curiously enough, I'm hung up. And the place I'm hung up is not far out beyond the furthest nebulae. This isn't the place to start. The place man is hung up the way God has made him is in the individual himself. The real place of problem is not far out in some superstar. It's not in some complicated mathematical formula. It simply is man as man can't explain himself, and yet one thing man knows, if he doesn't know anything else, and that is he's really there. He's really there. This is tied in then with, the, with this first order communication business of the theater of the observed. Having smashed language, having devaluated language, after giving it an absurd situation to teach an absurdity, nevertheless they hope something else drops out, and they're still somewhere in the concept of a first order experience, of an upstairs first order experience. I would say in passing, though I'm not going to enter into it tonight, that I think it's intriguing that this Jonathan Miller, with all his insights, that he is uh, in England one of the men following McLuhan most carefully. And McLuhan is a key. McLuhan, with his cool communications, non-contentful, away from the printed page, no content but a direct first-order experience, say, on the television screen. And I think it's interesting that Jonathan Miller goes on in this article and deals further with McLuhan, but I'm not going to do that tonight because it isn't the direct, uh, uh, it isn't the direction uh, of this lecture. But uh, it's interesting that there is this tie again. Um, you remember that I've quoted at times uh, Leonard Baskin. And some of you have been fortunate enough to hear uh, Dr. Rookmacher's lecture that he gave here a few years ago in modern art. And, but Leonard Baskin also uh, has dealt with some of the uh, same areas. Leonard Baskin is an artist in his own right, uh, and uh, he teaches at Smith College uh, in, uh, in the United States, very fine girls' university. And uh, in it, he says, he has a little piece in which he's speaking against modern art, from an artistic viewpoint, and he says it destroys everything because it destroys the human. Exactly the same thing as we read in this, uh, this interview with Jonathan Miller. In Miller's words, there's no east end uh, to the modern cathedral, the modern secular cathedral. Uh, Leonard ba Baskin points out the interesting thing, and I think it is overwhelming, and I think that's why men spend millions for art, is that wherever you find an artifact of art when you, when you study it, it's made by your kind. I don't think he uses quite that expression. I think it's the way I've brought it down, but it's what he means. Uh, bringing it into biblical terms, it's made by your kind. And I've pointed out many, many times to people who say, well, it's human, human, that you can go back to the caves, you can go back where you want, and when you touch an art object, it's made by your kind. It's a human being that made this art object. This is who made it, no matter where you find it. And I had a big shock in this uh, when I was lecturing in Covenant Theological Seminary, uh, oh, what was it, nine months ago, and somebody gave me an art book on the caves, uh, the early caves in the Pyrenees, and there was one there that I, uh, uh, reproduction, 
I thought I'd seen most, most of them in reproduction, but there was one reproduction there I never knew existed, and it was a real shock because some artist back 20,000, 30,000 years ago had taken a chisel and followed a cleavage in the rock, uh, and he had, he had cut the torso of a woman. And I found it, I was just brought to a complete standstill. I took that thing, set it up in my room where I was lecturing, uh, where I was studying uh, the president's home there, preparing for the lectures of Covenant, and I just looked at it over and over for days. Because if you had seen that woman, uh, she's just the same as anybody. It's a human woman. This is not somebody strange. You're not taken by surprise. You don't say, what's that? You say, that's a human being. It's my kind. 20,000 years ago, 30,000 years ago, the figure of the woman or the painting on the caves, Chinese bronzes, uh, very, very strange art forms, but they're always your kind. Man is man. There's something in this that he cannot get rid of no matter what he does. And I have a little thing from the New York Review of Books in January 6, 1966 by E.H. Professor uh, at the University of London, in which he speaks of this. He's speaking of, of uh, beauty in Greek art. And he says, granted that the canon varies, to deny the common core in this experience would mean to deny the unity of mankind. Here you have modern man saying man is absurd. And the, the more honest he is, screaming with greater clarity, man is absurd. And yet all the time that he's saying man is absurd, you have this man and he says, but isn't it strange when you look back over the art forms, no matter where you look, there's a unity to mankind. Isn't it strange? Man, really, there's something here that isn't absurd. And here's your tension. Here's your tension. In a very, uh, in a very different way, I've recently been working on this book uh, that uh, somebody very kindly gave me. I forget if it was for Christmas or birthday, but I got around to it recently. Uh, African Sculpture by uh, Lad Islas Segi. L-A-D-I-S-L-A-S, Segi, S-E-G-Y. And he's known as a, an expert, at least some people think he's an expert, on African, uh, skull, on African masks. And it's a very good book on African masks. He's a native of Hungary. He lived in Paris for 18 years. By 1932, his collection of African sculptures was widely recognized as one of the finest and most comprehensive in the world and was exhibited in European capitals a number of times. He has maintained his leadership this leadership since his arrival in America in 1936 and has become one of the acknowledged experts in the field. In 1950, he established the Segi Gallery in New York City, which has since become known as one of the most com comprehensive private collections of African art. Now, this is an interesting man. And uh, tied up the same thing, this, this dilemma of the mannishness of man, after you, you have cut away all the basis for it, and when rationality really would scream uh, by the best prophets, the best secular prophets, uh, man is absurd. And yet the tension. On page three of the introduction, Segi says, in, a, in our present understanding, we know that spirits do not exist. We know them to be products of man's imagination or projections of his wishes. So he's showing that the African masks are uh, were thought of a place where spirits reside. And then he says, but of course, we know better than these people. There is no, There are no spirits. There is no supernatural. We live in a secularized world. But on page five, he raises an interesting thing that shows the same tension again. The fact that Western man of the 20th century can feel such an emotional encounter in an African carving raises many varied questions. We capture its message because we can read its plastic language. But what is the emotion which is invoked in us? 
and a little further on, can we possibly accept the suggestion that we have remains of such beliefs in our own psyche? Isn't this intriguing? So he just says just what this uh, this Baskin has said about art in general, what uh, Gombrich has said about Greek art and beauty. He says, isn't it strange, even when you look at things as far away from most of us as African masks, they're not really strange to us. There's something in us that responds to it. Even though he denies, he denies the fact of any supernatural, any reality of a spirit world, it doesn't matter. He says, strange, I look at these African masks and I'm not really separated from them. They're just... Somehow there's a relation here. It's exactly the same thing. It isn't, a, it isn't just some deep psychological thing in our psyche. The real, re real thing is that these African masks, they were made by human beings just as I'm a human being. This is the real, this is the real factor involved here. Um, we find that the Africans, therefore, in the primitive state, uh, just as our forefathers in, the, in Europe, in their primitive state, for example, uh, they believed in a spirit world. This is absolutely true. Uh, but the, it's interesting, of course, that if Christianity is true, the African believing in a spirit world, though he might believe in it wrongly, is much clearer to the reality of what exists in the universe than the modern man. We must never forget this. When I look at my forefather, uh, worship, uh, in the, uh, say, in the Germanic forests on my father's side, uh, the strange things that the, my English ancestors worshipped on my English side, or in the African, uh, African bush, it doesn't matter. In every case, these people really believed in a supernatural world. And they may have worshipped the spirits wrongly, which they did in each case. But we must never forget, from the biblical viewpoint, they were really much closer to the truth than modern man. Nobody, if the biblical view is true, which is the, and the testimony of the human race down through the ages, uh, as to what the universe is, nobody is so stupid as modern man. You couldn't be more stupid than modern man. It just is impossible. Because you don't understand what the universe is, you don't understand who you are, and you, you have to come to absurdity, and you'll not be able to live with absurdity. I sometimes use the illustration that if you get in a, got in a Boeing 707, and you sat in the middle of three seats, and you had on one side an African that had just right out of the bush, never, 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 didn't have any comprehension of the airplane, and you had on the other side of you the man who made the Boeing 707. And just say happily, uh, the man who was one of the chief designers of the Boeing 707 has become a Christian after being here. And so I know this man, so he's not fictitious to me. Now I think of him now, a uh, fellow that I count as a real friend, he's a lovely guy, um, and uh, let's say before he was a Christian, after all he would know every bolt, because he designed the thing, he was the chief designer. And if they had trouble, uh, and they knew who he was, they would have run to him and they'd say, Where's the, where do the wires go, where are the bolts, this, that, the other thing. He could tell you every little detail about the Boeing 707 before he was a Christian. Uh, but on the other side, and if he was here, he would let me say this, because he would be quite agree. Uh, on the other side, you have an African who doesn't understand anything about the Boeing 07, but he worships spirits. And this other man, being a, a, not, uh, um, a modern man, uh, didn't, let's say he didn't believe anything about the supernatural. I'm not sure quite that was sure, true of Bob Hage, but let's say for a moment that it was, before he was a Christian. A man, a real modern man who didn't believe anything about the supernatural against the man who didn't understand anything about, uh, about the airplane flying so many hundred miles an hour, so high in the air, 30,000, 35,000 feet, uh, uh, and yet worshipping the spirits. Who understands the universe best? 
Well, the black man who worships the spirit. He understands the universe better than the man who can build the 707 and thinks we live in a purely materialistic universe of decreation because the universe of decreation leads you very quickly, as we've seen tonight, to the place where man himself is absurd, and yet he can't stand it, and yet he can't stand it. You have something parallel this to the Greeks, I'd always point out. When the Greeks built a temple, they always polished the stones that nobody could see. And if you asked them why, they'd say because the, the God can see the inside of the stones, and so we polish the stones that human eye can't see. And they had a very deficient concept of who God was. But nevertheless, somebody was there to see. And because somebody was there to see, they were much closer to the reality not only of what the universe is and God being there, but what man is than modern man. As soon as modern man enters into the decreation and there's nobody there to see, what really is involved is he doesn't understand anything any longer. He just doesn't understand anything any longer. It's interesting that this man quite properly relates the African mass to cubism and modern art. Just reading a few little quotes because it's intriguing. Today, however, thanks to the Cubist revolution, resulting in an entirely new uh, aesthetic approach to works of art and our modern trend of co to cultural syncretism, it is no longer necessary to apologize for African art. And on page 26, 27, he becomes a little more specific. All this is simply a rewording of a discovery of Cezanne's, which I have tried to adapt to an African art. This adoption, strange though it may seem at first, shouldn't be to those of you who are here, heard various lectures, is not really forced. African art and the Cubists shared much. After Cezanne, the great innovator of our day, had realized, in quotes, to use his own expression, a number of paintings, he tried to explain the inner metabolism of his work. In one of his famous lectures, he wrote that a painting can be constructed upon the basis of cones and spheres. A cone represents two straight lines meeting at an angular point with a round base and, a, and the sphere is perfectly round. If the cone is dissected, it becomes angles and if the sphere is slashed through the middle or in sections, it becomes an infinity of roundness. Angularity and roundness are the reoccurring motives of ang African art. But still further, on page 29, uh, Cezanne, who never saw African art, laid down the basic principles upon which the Cubists began to create their own work. But then afterwards, of course, he comes to Picasso, and Picasso did see African masks. African masks and statue were on exhibit in the, I'm on page 30, in the old Trocadero Museum, or were sold in curio shops. And it is not unnatural that artists who were evolving new concepts upon seeing these Africans' carvings found to their astonishment that what was new to them had actually been familiar to African artists for many hundreds of years and became enthusiastic about African art. Indeed, the credit for the recognition of African art as art is not as ethological, and not as ethological specimens as due to these Parisian artists. We may carry this one step further and say that our own modern ability to see African sculptor as great art is due to these European artists and to the assimilation of their new aesthetic standards. Now, never mind whether we agree with all that, but he's right, of course. But I would just point out that modern man, with his decreation, the use of decreation, used an African mask in a very different way than the African used it. Because the African put it on and in this, in the way he hid his personality, or he identified with himself with a spirit that supposedly lived in the mass. True enough, primitive concept, but this at least was there. 
But modern man, starting with Picasso, uses masks in very different ways because when Picasso gets done with the masks, the pe- there's nobody there. It's a very, very different thing. It's an entirely different thing. The African using the mask, the man is still there, behind the mask. But when you take the Damas of Alavavigno, the this great central painting of Picasso's, and you move over to the right, and you see these figures on the right, these people aren't people. They just aren't people. They're dead. What's the difference? Well, the, the fact is that the, the man in Africa may have been primitive in his concept of spirits, but something was there. Modern man, with his decreation, has nobody there. And so when you put a mask on, there's nobody there. There's really nobody there. The personality's dead. What you have here, of course, is a, a direct parallel to John Cage's use of Chinese, Chi, the Chinese a Book of Chances. And you remember, I've I only mentioned detail be, uh, quickly because I've given it in detail. Uh, John Cage was trying to work out a new set of, of music by chance. And as he was trying to work out, he found the book of I Ching. And I Ching was written many, many hundreds of years ago in China as a way so that you, you could, the man who threw the coins or the yarrow sticks couldn't control the way they fell so the spirits could speak through the yarrow sticks. So therefore, there was no mathematical way that was so complicated for the man to influence the fall of the sticks. And then the spirit spoke through the sticks. Well, John Cage picked it up, used it so he couldn't have any expressionism in his throwing of the sticks, to use this term, but threw them so chance would speak because there weren't any spirits to speak. And that's an entirely different world. So what the Chinese used so the thrower couldn't influence the sticks but the spirits could speak John Cage used so nothing but chance could speak and of course he gets noise well this is exactly the same thing as you have with the African mask the African mask it became something more because there was nobody there with with modern man so you have this you have this whole structure nobody home in the universe decreation and you have a therefore a complete loss as the, uh, as the Africans never had a complete loss. And then you have these paintings of Picasso where you wonder, is anybody there at all? At the present time, I'm just looking through Picasso's Picassos, and I open them one a day, and I look at these paintings. And as I look at them, and I look at what he did, did how he painted his mistresses, I must say, is anybody there? Is anybody there? What did he think of these people? It's a very, very interesting thing that, as I say, when he fell in love with Olga, his wife, the one he married, and as he well, fell in love with his present, uh, uh, his present woman whom he's married, he didn't paint them that way when he was in love with them. He had to paint them very differently. But when he paints these mistresses of his, he just feel he, he's killed something. There's something here that the African really didn't mean any more than the Chinese meant in the casting of his yarrow sticks. It's modern man who with his decreation has no man left, and yet always the tension that he can't, he can't get beyond it. So this man, Sigi, says, isn't it strange, with everything so different, yet I look at an African mask, and when I look at an African mask, there's still something in me that responds. And I would just say, it isn't strange, Sigi. Don't you understand? A man made that mask, and you're a man, and you can say anything you want, but you can't deny who you are in your reactions. You can say, I'm a machine. You can say with Andy Warhol, I wish I were a machine, something like this. You can say with modern man, I am a machine. I am nothing but a determined thing, whether chemically or uh, psychologically. But when it's all done, when you look at a thing made by man, you're not strange to it because there is something, really. Man is something. Man is nothing. And this is, this is the point of contact. 
Now when you come, you find in uh, modern man struggling with this very much. And I have a thing here I want to read from the New York Herald Tribune, June 15 and 16, 1963. Some time ago, the New York Theater Letter. The Problem of Belief in Drama by Walter, Walter Kerr, for the, the critic for the New York Herald Tribune. And he's talking about modern drama. So now I'm back uh, closer to the theater of the absurd in this postscript, though the whole thing's related to it, actually. And he's talking about modern drama. And he quotes uh, Edward Elby, who's an important man to quote, uh, at this point. And he says here, this is what he quotes Elby as saying, so, what is an illusion anyway? Illusion. Illusion. I-L-L-U-S-I-O-N. What is an illusion anyway? And he quotes uh, the answer by Edward L. Albee. Quote, something that has not yet been proven false is an illusion, isn't it? Did you hear what he said? Something that has not yet been proven false is an illusion, isn't it? In other words, anything that has any hope in it is, is a lie. It's the same way back all the way to Ibsen. And this is what is presented in this drama. Anything, anything that hasn't proven false already is an illusion because when you get into it, it's going to be proven false. So you have a choice. It's proven false or it's an illusion. And you can, you can take your choice. I take Mr. Albee's question, statement, really, to imply the following propositions. What has already been proven false is false. What has not yet been proven false is illusionary. One day, too, it will be proved false. On that day, everything will be seen to be false. That's exactly what modern man's saying and what the whole theater of the absurd is about and the whole modern painting and all the rest of it we've tried to bring together in this. A little further on, Kerr says this. What I would like to stress at the moment is the audience response to the image. Now here we've come, and he's quite right. I think it's a little bit, I found it's a little, it would be humorous if it wasn't so sad that the, uh, the drama critic for the New York Herald Tribune takes, it seems taken by surprise at Albee's statement, which is ra rather stupid, really. If you're a drama critic, you ought to know what the dramatist is saying all the time. You shouldn't be taken by surprise. But what he's saying is here, well, isn't it, here's this is only absurdity. Uh, but now he's saying, well, how does, how does the audience react to it? And it's interesting, he says it doesn't believe it. Now we come to this tension we're talking about. Man is absurd, and according to all the logic, it's absurd, and yet the man who looks at the play somehow isn't caught because whether through one way or another, he sees something else. He feels something else would be a better way to put it. And this is what it says. It has, uh, it has known, to be sure, a dream of a moment's love, that is the audience, that turned out to be counterfeit. It is also known a moment's love. It has, betray has been betrayed by what it thought was friendship. It has also been, been stunned to find ge generosity where it couldn't have been looked for. It has undergone endless failures of communication. It has also sometimes found the right word and sometimes heard the right word said. As it comes from the theater, it will instinctively glance, that's the audience, at the newsstands to see whether an astronaut has landed safely or the Pope has died. If it feels a catch of emotion in its awareness of courage or of kindliness, it does not feel obliged to dismiss its feelings, dismiss its feelings as uh, deceptive illusions. The courage and the kindliness were there. Mixed in with these things will be the news of a race riot that is there too. And what he's doing is simply stating what I'm saying, and that is here's the tension. 
Modern man says on the basis of decreation, on the basis of all logical, all rationality, man is really dead and everything is an illusion. And yet inside of himself, man really can't accept this because man's man. And here is, here's your tension. Now, of course, I would say the marvelous thing of Christianity, of Christianity at this particular place, it explains Kerr's situation of humanity, the noble and the horrible. And, of course, Christianity's answer is yes, because man has been made in the image of God, but there's been a space-time historic fall, and so man now is abnormal. So Christianity is the one philosophy uh, that, that really gives the answer uh, to these, uh, this double view, uh, double view of man. So when you take something like Walter Kerr, you find that he expresses this tension uh, against all, all, uh, with all logic, all rationality, nothing but illusion. And yet at the same time, man being extruded into this upper story of at least hoping something will drop out like Terry Southern or of hoping for communication after you've destroyed all language in an upper story, first order communication, whether it be in the theater. And you remember the, the uh, very clearly this is the... Uh, this is uh, an area of the theater of the absurd, or an LSD, it simply doesn't matter. You can choose LSD, or you can choose the theater of the absurd. The hope against all hope that somehow there's going to be communication and something will drop out. Why? Because man is man. Man is man. And this crops up, uh, this crops up on every side. Now, I want to use something, I quote, I stopped last time, uh, of, uh, I read the cover of this disc of Bob Dylan's, the Dr. Rookmacher Lonely. And uh, now I, I want to use um, I want to use one of the um, uh, I want to use one of the bands. And this is in Bob Dylan's uh, one of Dylan's Bob Dylan's record. Now we've been we've been discussing this in the more uh, art forms that have been considered a little bit different than Bob Dylan maybe. Uh, but uh, it is something that's in Bob Dylan as well, and what, the, what our children listen to, what the youngsters listen to, uh, as well as when you go into the most far-out art museum you'll find, or into the exclusive theater. So it isn't just the theater. It isn't just the theater on a high level, art on a high level. It's what our youngsters are beaten by uh, on, the, on every side. Uh, I'll let you read, um, let you listen to just a little bit of the music because the music's important too. How do I start this? No, I have already let it one. Is it plugged in? Did you have a plug? It's on. Alright, it's on now. Just wait a second. It's called The Ballad of a Thin Man, and uh, apparently wrote himself. And now, last time I read you with care the back of the cover and pointed out it sounds like nonsense, but it's not out nonsense. It communicates uh, uh, very close to a, a destructive, but a very selective destruction. Now, here is this. I hope this time we go someplace. Just like you say when you get 
far from nothing. The very music is, is tremendous. It's really, it's really terrific in communication. Uh, many people would say, well, these youngsters, it's, it's nothing. It's not nothing. It's like a pop art. It's something very, it's the end, it's the opposite. It's totally destructive. It's just like the theater of the absurd. It sounds as though it destroys everything and leaves you with only nonsense. And yet when you stop and think of it and listen to the words with great care, it has made a very selective destruction. And youngsters who sit and listen to this and listen to it and listen to it, uh, it it's, uh, it's on the same level as the theater of the absurd. It mustn't be said to be nothing. And we mustn't think this isn't going to influence them uh, in a selective destruction. Now I want to read you the words. Ballad of a Thin Man. You can't copy it as quickly as I'm going to read. Anybody wants to borrow it? I'll put it up on the bulletin board. Nobody take it down, please, but you can copy it up there in the next couple of days. Ballad of a Thin Man. You walk into the room with your pencil in your hand, and you see somebody naked, and you say, who is that man? You try so hard, but you don't understand just what you're saying when you get home, because something is happening here, but you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? You raise up your head and you ask, Is this where it is? And somebody points to you and says, It's his. And you say, What's mine? And somebody else says, Well, what is? And you say, Oh my God, am I all alone? But something is happening, and you don't know what it is. Do you, Mr. Jones? Your hand is in your ticket. You hand in your ticket, and you go watch the keep, who immediately walks up to you when he hears you speak and says, how does it feel to be such a freak? And you say impossible as he hands you a bone. And something is happening here, but you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? And you have many contacts among the lumberjacks to get you back when somebody attacks your imagination, but nobody has any respect. Anyway, they already expect for you all to give a check to a tax-deductible charity organization. Ah, you've been with professors, and they all have liked your looks, with great lawyers you have discussed, lepers and crooks. You have come through all of F. Fitzgerald Scott's books. You are very well read. It's well known. But something is happening here, and you don't know what it is. Do you, Mr. Jones? Well, the sword swallower, he comes up to you, and he kneels. He crosses himself, and then he clicks his, he his high heels. And without further notice, he asks you how it feels. And he says, here's your throat back. Thanks for the loan. And you know something is happening, but you don't know what it is. Do you, Mr. Jones? And you see this one-eyed midget shouting the word now. And you say, for what reason? And he says, how? And you say, what does this mean? And he screams back, you are a cow. Give me some milk or, or else go home. And you know something is happening, but you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? Well, you walk into the room like a camel, and when you frown, you put your eyes in your pockets and your nose to the ground. There ought to be a law against your coming around. You ought to be made to wear earphones. Something is happening, and you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? If you think this is nothing, you really have a hole in your head. It's exactly the thing as the theater of the absurd and these other destructive things. But it's a, a highly selective destructivity. It's not, it's not, it, does, it isn't that it doesn't communicate. It communicates very well. Any of you that are uh, adapted all at double meanings will have read double meanings throughout some of this. A lot of it's just plain dirty. But at the same time, it isn't only dirty. You mustn't make mistake. It isn't just an old dirty book like dirty books used to be used. It's something much more profound. It's really destructive. It's very much more like Arthur Miller's work in, in, his, uh, in his tropics. When you're done, sex is dead, too. Everything's dead. And especially when you connect it up with music. <laughs> 
You raise up your head and you ask, is this where it is? Then somebody points to you and says, it's his. And you say, what's mine? And somebody else says, well, what is? And you say, oh my God, am I here all along?
different but really related some of you seen this look uh, edition of uh, June 1928 I mean June 28 1966 June 28 1966 it's interesting that after going through the, the, the withered people in California and the far out things and what difference it's going to make in our culture, all of which I think is right, the interesting thing is, is this little conclusion when it's talking about LSD. And it says, it may, may seem iron, ironical that a highly technical society would create a demands and a means for mystical exploration. And this is LSD. And these things, I would just bring them together. I just bring them together as I close. The simple fact is that all these are, they may sound very different. May, LSD and Bob Dylan may sound a million miles apart. In the Theater of the Observed, a tremendous, a tremendous artwork in one of our best museums, a long way off from the kids uh, listening to Bob Dylan and, and wiggling their hips. But in reality, it's exactly the same. All you do is got the same message, a monolithic message on all these levels of communication and the people really understand. They really understand. And this relates uh, to this tension. The tension on one hand uh, to the fact that uh, in a decreated world, in a decreated world, to use Simone Weil's word, uh, according to all rationality and all logic, everything is absurd. As absurd as you can possibly think of it being. And yet at the same time, man just can't live with this and he's still man. Uh, and he's in this uh, this tremendous tension. He just can't get away from being human. Now I think, just say that I feel that this is exactly what Paul was talking about in Romans one. I think that this could be put as a uh, as a good a good exegesis of those verses in Romans one that says that after all man really knows about God. And it puts down the two verses and it says man knows about God in something in himself in his conscience, and man knows something really about God in the external created world. And so, in a way, everything I've said tonight is just an exegesis of Romans 1. Just this. The man can't escape this. He really can't. Now, in conclusion, therefore, and this comes within the two hours of the lecture, uh, it shuts us up to two real possibilities and then a third out. Two real possibilities and then a third out, which is no real possibility, and yet it's the actual direction that the modern man is taking. The first real possibility is the fact that man is more absurd than the theater of the absurd or the worst modern art you've ever seen uh, has dared to say. This is one possibility. That really man is more absurd than, uh, than modern man has dared to say on any level of communication. So after you've gotten rid of all logical communication, all rational communication, all linguistic communication, and you've sought for first-order experience, uh, it, the, real, the real answer to all this really uh, would be simply nuts. This is a good philosophic statement at this point. That 
that if you're going to be really rational, if you're going to be logical, that all these hopes of something dropping out of pornographic literature, such as Terry Southern would say, or the theater of the absurd, or the first order experience, whether it's drugs or whether it's in uh, uh, a communication like we've just listened to, uh, it is absolute, absolute nonsense. And the first possibility, the first real possibility is to say, I'm not going to stand in the queue any longer. I'm just not going to stand in the queue any longer. It's finished, and the whole thing is, is just beyond all words. It's impossible. The second possibility is the Judistic Christian tradition, the Judistic Christian message which reverses the whole thing we've been talking about tonight and is the only system, the only teaching, which gives an answer of real creation. Now, I'm coming back to Sigmund Wheel. She's absolutely right that the issue is creation. Or the Updike where he says, uh, I believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth. This, this is the crux. He's there and he is created. And then other things can follow. And the Judistic Christian tradition is unique because you do not find creation in the same sense in other systems or other religion. You have an extension of essence, something like this, but it, but it becomes very shadowy, uh, or it's something very shadowy. You remember Don was speaking of, uh, of the uh, Confucius concept of creation, uh, and in his lecture he gave us on one of his lectures on Chinese philosophy and said the creation was not by the word God was not by what they call God, but two very shadowy figures that had no relationship to God whatsoever. So here's another way. You have uh, in India an extension of God's essence, no real creation, just extension. Uh, in the Chinese thinking, this very shadowy thing. But in the Judistic Christian tradition, a real creation. So here is, here is the opposite real answer. The first real answer is just saying it's more absurd than anybody's dared to say yet. The other is to say, well, the Judistic Christian tradition really has an answer and tells me expressly who I am. And this is the crux. It tells me what is. Judistic Christian tradition claims to be not true in the sense of merely true to a dogmatic statement. The Bible emphasizes that it sets forth a truth to what is. And we must never limit truth to anything less. It's not a truth to what the creeds say, though I am a creedal man. It's not a truth to what the Bible says, though I hold a very strict view of what the Bible is. But it's true to what is. And it's true to what is, first of all, to the ultimate environment that he is there. The very opposite of, uh, of honest to God is saying God isn't there and being embarrassed by it. You mustn't be embarrassed by it. You must say he is there. Not in the sense of a three-story universe, something like this. I don't know if anybody's ever believed this. Uh, this is a fiction. Uh, this is a caricature. This is a canard of the, of the Christian position. Uh, but in, he's really there. He really exists. And then he has created all things out of nothing. And as soon as I understand that, I understand who he is, but I also understand what this universe with its form is. But more expressly, I understand what man is. And then wonder of wonders, I know who I am. And you can take one choice or the other, and they are real possibility. And I would point out, just as I showed you tonight, man can't forget man, that he's man. In the art objects, all these things, he knows uh, the opposite answer is against the total experience of the whole human race. You must never forget that. The opposite answer, the logical answer of modern man, that man's really absurd and he's dead, 
is against the total experience of the whole human race. He's not just, it's not just against a little experience or merely the Jews' experience or the Christians' experience, <clears throat> but at the point of man, it's against the experience of the whole human race. And every artifact you'll ever find in art, in anywhere, testifies to this, that man sees himself as man. And therefore, this opposite logical conclusion, and it is a logical conclusion to say everything is total nonsense and chaos. It's a logical conclusion, but the only way you can hold it is by denying the total experience of the human race. And I think this is the point of, the real point of apologetics to 20th century people today. It's to start with what explains man and who man feels he is. Uh, Bob Cook, when he was leaving this last time, said to me, well, I think I see. And that is the cutting edge of your apologetics is on, on man being man. And I totally agree. I feel this is 20th century apologetics. This is 20th century evangelism. To begin with the understanding that man cannot deny his man, no matter how he is driven to it by his logic, when he's all done, he still has the testimony left in himself, just like Paul says is the case at Romans 1. And you must never forget that it really is opposed to the testimony of the whole human race. When I was in St. Louis last time, I was speaking along this something like this at uh, the first of three meetings I had in St. Louis, evening meetings, and all of a sudden I thought of an illustration I never thought of before. There was a tape recorder standing down in front of me grinding away. And I said, well, it's like this. Uh, supposing uh, we looked at it and we said, what's this? And how does it work? What's this and how does it work? And then somebody came up and said, I'm a great scientist, and I've studied it, and I can tell you how it works. When you push this button on the left, the tape always moves to the, uh, to the left. When I push the button on right, the tape always moves to the right. And we'd say, oh, that's terrific. That's a tremendous thing to find out. Uh, and now we're going to try. So I pushed the button on the left, and instead of the tape going to the left, it went to the right. And I pushed the button on the right, instead of the button on the, the tape going to the right, it went to the left. And I tried it for 20,000 years. And every single time I pushed the button, the tape went in the opposite direction than the man had said. We wouldn't think it was a very fine system that he had worked out. Well, this is exactly what modern man has done in the concept of decreation in saying man, man is nothing. Because every time you find a man anywhere in history, no matter what his culture, what he is, he, he testifies to himself that he really is something, is something else. So modern man, with always emphasis that this is all man is, what he's doing really is denying a thousands of years of the testimony of the, of the object at hand, and that is man himself. So therefore, what we see is here is the tension, and these are the two possibilities. If you're going to deal with rationality and logic, there are two possibilities. One is to be more observed than anybody's dared to be. The other is to accept that indeed this is truth. That what explains indeed what man is then when you push this button, it goes in the right direction. And that is the Judistic Christian tradition, the teaching, the revelation of God that tells about our ultimate existence, our ultimate environment, but also that being created, we know who we are, especially as made in the image of God. These are the two possibilities, but the thing you must be aware of is that there is a third non-possibility that really modern man is choosing instead. It's a non-possibility on the basis of all logic and all rationality, and yet it's undoubtedly the thing that our culture is choosing. It has, uh, and that is um, this leap into mysticism. And this is the thing, surely, we have to watch out for. If men would stay on the basis of logic and rationality, it would be quite clear. It's one or the other. But whether it's in the LSD leap or whether it's in another kind of leap, a hope for a first-order communication after you've denied language, it doesn't matter 
all these things are a non possibility logically, and yet it's actually uh, yet it's actually the way uh, the way modern man is going. People, as you said to you, some of you before, people often ask me, what do you think comes next? And I have no question in my mind what comes next. I can be wrong, but I have no question in my own mind. It's the thing I train my own children for and I train you. And that is a mysticism, a somatic mysticism that's used as a means of control in an increasing totalitarian situation. So what you have is two possibilities. The possibility of being more absurd than ever or, or, or the, the answer of the creation. But what you have, on the other hand, is a third non-possibility that it seems to me our culture has taken, whether it's the theater or the observed. Here's Eslin. He says we've devaluated language, and yet he ends up with a vague pantheism. It is impossible, but that's where he ended up his book, amazingly enough. Here you have California, modern man, and then you take LSD. It really doesn't make any difference. Bob, uh, Bob Dylan. You have an absurd situation and yet a projection of a very selective destruction that still leaves a, a lot of things undestroyed. So it seems to me now in conclusion of this with the, the three lectures, there are two possibilities. The one is a, a greater absurdity than men have yet dared to do. And I think in courage we must say to these people, have the courage to go to the absurdity if you're going to ride this horse. On the other hand, man being man gives us a chance to talk to him and all these men are in tension. And here we have Christianity's answer. But there is the third answer, which is a non-answer rationally, and yet nevertheless, uh, I think, which we're going to have to see is coming. Whether it's in the new theology, or whether it's in the somatic mysticisms of art, or wherever it is, or LSD, men are, are open for, an, for a, uh, a choice that is no choice rationally. And that is a mysticism above the absurd. So the theater of the absurd in conclusion, then absurdity, uh, not dis described in good language like Sartre and syntax, but absurdity expressed by absurdity. And yet, nevertheless, when you get done, these people are still trying to give a mysticism above it with a first-order experience. And I think this is where we are today. And in one hand, this opens the way for our evangelism. And that is to really speak to men as men. Really speak to men as men. But there's the other side of it, and that is here's the thing to beware of, and that is not to be trapped into uh, opening the doors or, uh, or forgetting really what the enemy is, and that is this mysticism that rather than the rational absurdity opes for a leap uh, into the upper story, into the mysticism, whether it uses uh, religious language or whether it uses secular terms. And this ends now these three lectures uh, on the theater of the absurd.